0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: McCard carrying basing at this point. Ben Alomar, director of sports analytics at ESPN. Uh, just to next to Big pop, you'd be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of <laughs> sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues.
2: This is Wharton Moneyballs post-game podcast.
0: This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We are live on Business Radio, SiriusXM XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Too much to talk about. Too much to talk about on this show. And I, guys, I've learned so much from y'all over the last five years, but one thing I know for sure is that I shouldn't stand in the way of Eric and Adi and a Hall of Fame vote. Oh, so, Excellent. I think that.
1: I think that's because we have two weeks until the Super Bowl. That gives us a little bit of a break. Well,
0: the main <laughs> thing is, is that after I, I just I, you don't I, want to I, talk I haven't recovered. Our long national
3: nightmare is still going. <laughs> <laughs>
0: There's so much
1: there. I mean, I, I'm so grateful that you would bring up the the Hall of Fame. So, what was particularly exciting to 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 Eric and I in particular was Rivera's 100. percent You've speculated
0: about it for a couple of years now.
1: Uh, Right. It's interesting. There were two people who said that they were not likely to vote for him who did him the favor, the courtesy, if you will, of not submitting a ballot. Which, is, uh, which doesn't really? count. Yeah, so if you don't submit a ballot, it's not a vote against. If you submit a blank ballot, it's a I vote I didn't even
3: realize that happened. Yeah. That's kind of a cheat. It kind of <laughs> is,
1: isn't it? Um,
3: <laughs> an asterisk, and, perhaps? An asterisk. You're not exactly. allowed to speak. <laughs> You're not allowed You're to not have allowed. a negative
1: opinion um, today. Okay. And, and it's right. interesting, because in some level, I mean, people, people who voted against Seaver and uh, who, who were really, really, Seaver was, I think, the, and Griffey. Griffey, yeah. We're, 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 what's, what's with? I mean, why be obnoxious and do that? And, and because potentially, because Sports think, yeah. Potentially, something about Rivera. I mean, I read his biography. This, this man was, a, was as close as a, a human being can be to be a saint. I mean, this was just... This oh, man, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, it was so boring. I mean, truthfully, the biography was so dull. Honestly. Because I, <laughs> nothing happened. I think, I think after, after he closed out the ninth inning, he went home and saved a puppy from a river. Right, right, right. Every game, it was great. But he would go back to his home but a country. a saint. And, <laughs> <laughs> Dealing with shade now, what's is interesting, spectacular.
4: What's interesting about
5: your uh, perception of the Hall of Fame this year is that... Well, obviously I was thrilled that Rivera got 100%. Um, I actually didn't focus on the top end of the Hall of Fame yeah. vote. Um, you know, there was obviously also the Veterans Committee, whatever they call it now. I actually focus on the fact that except for Rivera, I'm okay with a couple other people, but I'm not thrilled with the Hall of Fame class. It's six people going into the Hall of Fame this year. Yep. Yeah. I'm certainly not happy about Harold Baines going into the Hall of Fame. Oh, definitely that's, definitely that's not a Hall that's of Fame ridiculous. player. ridiculous. Lee Smith was the best closer in the National League for a short period of time. At best, he's a Tier 3 Hall of Famer. but I, A low Tier 3. A low Tier yeah. 3 Hall of Famer. Edgar Martinez, in my view, is not a Hall of Famer. I don't think his statistics show he's a Hall of Famer. I, I don't... I, I, as a DH, that as is a DH, a So we already have three guys, two guys, in my view, who are not Hall of Famers at all, one turn, guy who's marginal. Well, I mean... We I, can get... Sorry, go ahead.
3: I, I was just going to say that I think it's worth making a distinction between the veterans sort of committee vote and the sort of regular vote. Well, well the fans vote. sort of
1: do, but it, um, I think you both get a plaque. No,
3: no, I understand. I just the veterans committee votes. I think are particularly egregious, or or, or
5: decisions are egregious. Like, like
3: I mean, I think if it was the class of four where Edgar was the weakest of the
5: class, I'm not even sure we'd be having this discussion. You know, I have no problem with that. Although I'm not a big fan of Edgar being in the Hall of Fame. I think Roy Halladay is an interesting person because he certainly had a. By definition. I think he had it all. He, he had it all. He had a
1: long enough career, 16 just years. Just long enough just career. Just long enough. He had, he had dominance. sainthood thing that Rivera that had, I don't, is that not, You don't really know what's... <laughs> this, this is Rivera. You're, you're yeah. underplaying
5: sainthood. But, of course, also, <laughs> we should also focus, though, not just on the people that got in, in my view, that shouldn't have gotten in, but the people that, you know, this is my theme for the day, false positive versus false negative. So now we have Clemens and Bonds who are sitting there who don't appear to be getting much closer. They're getting closer, but, you know, at least the data... Real,
0: real quickly, let me be the rube here. Remind yep. us what the cutoff is. Those guys go, both got right about 60%. percent you got to get
5: to 75%.
1: Right. 70, 75%. And,
0: and they've got... Three, three years left. Years. But they've kind of plateaued. It. They, so, no, they've... no,
1: actually, well, sort of. I mean, yes. to, uh, last year, they took a big leap from they were where they were on the mid-40s, I see and that. they moved up to the mid-50s. Now they're at 60. There usually is a a, a somewhat penetrating jump that happens the last year Not or two. Bad. Okay, So, so, so Adi, you've Edward, done a lot of modeling. I've done a lot stuff. of mo- Well, I've been doing a lot of, I've enjoying the forecasting aspect of this. Yeah. So, uh, what you see is about half the ballots get released before the vote. The, of, about a quarter get released eventually and you know, later after the vote, but do get released, and a quarter are kept completely private. And it's the quarter that are kept completely private that hate bonds and Clemens, yep. And they tend to hate closers. They tend to be sour. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons why this sourdom is, is salty, is, is, <laughs> salty. Yes. Salty. Um, and uh, well, you know, he's he's a fan of Belichick. He knows all the words for salty and sour. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and and what happens is those those group of voters are 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 just they they don't vote for the. The problematic characters they, they and they because they're obstructed from public view so they don't they don't get criticized but so it's so, what that,
0: that, that that's a choice though right that's a choice okay. that's yes. right
1: so what I've tried to do is forecast who's going to get in before the election actually happens using the public ballot and the tricky part is to estimate the private ballot so one thing that I've learned is uh, over the last year and I verified it again this year is although only half the ballots get made public the remaining quarter of ballots that will become public are identical to the public. So, ah, so okay. you've got, you got a pretty so darn precise care of, of three-quarters of the ballot before yeah. it ends. So Wait, it, I thought
3: that you s- just said that there were systematic biases against the steroid users The, quor- the, the quarter like that, that, it, it. that, the that never gets appeared. The, the quarter the the that never shows
1: So half is released before the vote. Uh, another quarter gets released after the vote, and a quarter stays private. You know what's private. interesting?
5: We study this in marketing all the time, which is when you fit models to data, let's say, let's say you're trying to predict a count, which right. in this case is a count. We study, you know, the famous model for count data in marketing is Poisson models. And what we find out in marketing all the time is it never fits data well, and here's why. There's way more zeros than the Poisson model ever fits. And that's the same thing that's going to happen here. There's going to be this spike at zero. We don't know if this spike at zero is going to be at 20%. Or is it 30%? Right. And they could never get in. In other words, it doesn't right. matter. You can run it for 40 more years as long as these people are alive and voting. If there's a spike at zero at 30%, Bonds and it Clemens n- are, not are not getting
3: never getting going to get in. We don't know what that so is. So is there any evidence in sort of, say, past or users that have gone this full 10 years that, I mean, I would imagine just psychologically maybe there are some of these salty ballot uh, uh, givers that, like, are going to vote for Clemens and Bonds, but only in their last
1: year of eligibility. Well,
5: so I think there. I think A
3: is that, there kind of yes, a spike there. Like is. That. Who's,
1: what, who's, uh, who's who can we point to? I mean, well, not as I, I good mean, as Bonds as Clemens. Well, They're no, nobody.
3: Up. That's the thing. Is it's it's hard because nobody I mean, like somebody like McGuire was maybe questionable right. anyway. Even he's without the steroids, yeah. but I mean, he's an example of somebody who's gone through the entire ten-year process. So you could look at whether or not was there he a bump in a at the end. I, actually, that,
1: that's that's a good question. I'm going to try to get the answer to that. So what I've tried to do is try to forecast the end. People are trying to to, to make forecasts for Bonds and Clemens, and I think Eric's point is, is is precise. You'll never do it. It's it's they're going to either make it or they're not, and we're just not going to know until the election happens. So what I tried to do with Messina, which which you didn't mention, of course, is very I'm extraordinarily gratified at Messina's election. But again, more I mean, he has a, one career he's a certainly low borderline uh, tier three uh, uh, tier three yeah but he's an interesting character because his conventional statistics were much worse than his sabermetric statistics okay. so
0: a lot Give of us an example of a couple okay so On era
1: era is uh is and pitchers have it better than hitters I mean, in the sense of your conventional statistics are are more accurate um but he has uh he has he had he never had a dominant era season in fact there was a year that that Clemens won the MVP we won 20 and three um, and Messina was you know 17 and and eight, ten or something, and and Clemens had a much lower ERA, and and, and, and uh, which is how you win that many games. And Massino had higher, but if you actually look at their underlying pitching performance off the field, take fielding out of it, Massino outpitched Clemens. And so this is something that people are understanding now using – and it's, it's much, you don't have to make the case. Everyone understands that these things are important because all the teams are doing it. Mm-hmm. And so you, so you don't have to argue so, vociferously yeah, and, that it and, matters. And the, and the problem – I
3: mean, I, I'm fine with Messina making it in, to be honest, though. He, he definitely is one of the weaker people to yes, make it yes. in. Um, the problem I always had is I, I never saw him as actually the best pitcher. No. Like, was there no. ever a season where he was the best pitcher well, in well, even his the, league?
1: Well, that's that was the point of the, the analogy. Well, right? That I made, so, that Clemens so was considered the best pitcher that year, but the data says that Messina was so the best so pitcher that right.
3: Year. So under advanced metrics, he actually was, was the, best the best pitcher, pitcher. in and, the AL that that's year, right. and
1: and also even he, more than Pedro. In the A, uh, well, um, when so was this? This was 2008? Uh, uh, no, this was 2009? late. This was two thousand nine. So okay. Pedro was already was already on the decline. So this so Messina kind of recovers by Sabre metrics, which is I think terrific, and. Um, you know, and and, and, and he, he it was not his last year, but the, I tried to forecast Messina, which was a lot of fun because he, every year his, his ballot percentage was growing, and he had to figure out the, the private ballot percentage ahead of time. And I made a forecast just using a straight linear regression, and I picked him at seventy six point five percent, which is what his final value. I'm not was. a little surprised that he got in in
5: a year where there were also a lot of other people getting in. Like this is well, the year I would have said maybe he's not going to make it just because you because know even Baines though they get Smith, I
1: don't think. That's that was off. It's, no, really no, 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 the, it's really the ballot Bayesian, crowding.
5: Even four getting in is a lot. Four,
1: but it's not five. So last year, I, I went against Edgar, even though the percentages said he was going to make it because his five was just too many, and he's going to get I remember get we talked
5: about this last year, which is, it's an interesting piece of, you know, since we're Bayesians here, right. you, you used a prior on the total yes. to influence the individual, and, and which fact, is
1: really a, a really clever thing so to do. So I, I used the same model last year for Martinez as I did for, as for Messina, and they both came up with around 76%. 70s. And Messina didn't shrink downwards because it was the fourth, not the fifth. And and Edgar, I just the thing brought it I down. Think,
5: to Shane's point, the thing I think that will raise Clemens and Bonds in their last year mm-hmm. is, I, will, I don't want to say 0%, because I saw a 0% event last night, which I want to talk about in just a second. They will 0% get in off the Veterans Committee. Mm. And so... You will probably see a bump, if they're not in, in their last year, of people that are saying, look, they're getting I'm close. not for this, yeah. but at the end We've of the day, they'll never get in on the Veterans Committee if I ever want to see them in, ever. Even if yeah. I think I have a 1% chance, i got to vote now, because there's literally a 0% chance that they'll get in on the me, I want to turn Committee. it to you.
1: So I was particularly fond about Messina, because he's someone who I kind of grew up with in some way. I...
0: Real quickly, on Messina, he's from Montresville, Pennsylvania, right in the middle of state, which yeah. is next door to Williamsport. He grew up right next door to where they play the Little League World Series.
1: So for me, he, he, was, uh, he was a freshman at Stanford when I, um, oh. a sophomore at Stanford when I started my graduate program. And my first couple years at Stanford, I worked extremely hard. I mean, a lot of graduate students do. And I would take an b- afternoon break whenever I could and watch Stanford play. You'd go out and, and so I would college watch college baseball. I would really? watch college – and it was a gorgeous place to watch. It's called the Sunken Diamond. Are there places in Palo Alto that aren't gorgeous? Uh, well, no. Um, <laughs> maybe it's really lab, a, a, state, a stats it's, lab, but it's, it's, it's a level of gorgeousness. Yeah, so, yeah. so I mean, this this is one of the most elegant diamonds around. Okay, um, I would actually say Yale also has a beautiful diamond. It's a, it's a it, it, it's an old fashioned. The Yankees used to play there when they were building um, the um, the uh, Are there places yeah, in you know, New Haven that aren't <laughs> gorgeous though, Audie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which is Come actually interesting now. because New Haven is a pit, <laughs> and and this is one of the most elegant aspects of it. Um, and so so I you know I was sort of with him this entire career and through his years at the Yankees. I think it's what just the question that I have is: Will he go in as a Yankee or as an Oriole? the The, uh, the Hall of Fame committee decides that you don't decide. That, well, oh Really? Yeah, that's correct. Um, he said he could. They asked him, and yeah. he said
5: he couldn't decide. He spent ten years with the Orioles, I think, and eight years with they the Yankees. They must
0: take in their preferences or something. Well, he, if, if there, there are
5: I, strong preferences, they do take them into account. Let yeah. me ask you a question. So Rivera got in, hundred percent of the vote. Let's now condition on position. We agree he's the greatest closer of all time. It's not close. Who provided more value? No, <laughs> that's another question. That's a different question. Yeah, among the four, <laughs> is he the greatest player at his position of all time? Rivera? Yeah, of course. Is there a better closer? No, I'm he asking means more a different question. Beyond oh, his oh, oh, second, is he the greatest no. player at his position of all time? No, no, I don't. You think mean so.
1: relative, relative no. to no, no, the no, other, no, no, other players at no. like his distance, position? So no, again. not even
5: close. I don't think so. you don't think even close. No, no, no. no. I mean well, first closers...
1: operationalize the measure. That's format. a good question,
5: by the way.
3: Yeah, it is a very
0: interesting question. <laughs> but tell me, is is it basically you want a norm within position Correct. and look at yes. their z score essentially? Yeah. yeah,
3: and I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean,
1: Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth has something like 10 seasons with 14 war. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like
0: it's that. like. But don't you have to give him a specific position? Are you combining uh, right positions fielder. at that point? No, no but the only position player.
5: The only outfielder. So let me just argue. I'm not going to argue against it, but let me just give a counterpoint to that. Babe Ruth was in a position where was Babe Ruth that much greater than Ted Williams? Was Babe Ruth that much... I mean, we always say, look, if Uh, Ted Williams... He doesn't
0: want want the Z-score. He wants the distance of the second guy. I think think so. You mean,
5: Babe Ruth was that... So let me just say the stats would say... I mean, I know these are the old-time stats. If Ted Williams had played the six years he missed because of you know, oh, serving yeah, our country, yeah, 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 yeah. he would have had well over seven hundred yeah, home yeah. runs. He would have had four thousand hits. Yeah. You know, and I mean, his stats. But he didn't.
1: And so no. you're absolutely right. So if you if you compare head to head season to season, maybe not. Um, and Ted Williams Babe certainly. Babe Ruth
3: changed the changed way the, the game. game is played yeah. in a way that Rivera. I mean, yeah, Rivera. Excellent baseball player, saint outside the diamond, but did not change <laughs> no the way down. the game hold is on. playing. Hold on,
0: hold on. I love the conviction with which a 40-year-old man in 2019 is saying, Babe <laughs> I know, right. right? So tell <laughs> me. That's one throw all
3: the old-timers out there. <laughs> that, was the, <laughs> me so, to that was the most old <laughs> you I'm channeling the, you know. all the salty well, old guys right When
1: now. I predicted the Patriots last week at the end of our last game. I know. He's just throwing me some bones back. Oh, I know,
3: I know. I mean, I am well, we'll I, I think we'll probably get
0: to that at some So point, but. We, near the end of this discussion, can you tell me – so clearly, you know, you've got this inner sanctum idea, inner tier right. of the Hall Rivera's of Fame. So it. Rivera's clearly in it. Yeah. And you talk about some guys being low tier three. Can, can you quantify these kinds of things? Can you – is there a model out there that says the likelihood of a guy getting in based on his performance – and then that gives you a, a yes. spectrum, and you can say we look yeah. at his number. There are mm-hmm. about three models that so, do so, that. So we don't depend on Eric saying yeah. this is a yeah, that the third tier guy versus a Jaffe score. For example, yeah, yeah. matter of fact, t- t- there, was a, t- yeah. there was an
5: article that just came out this week that oh. takes the Jaffe score and two others and just model averages them, and then comes up with a tiering of the players going into the Hall of Fame. Rick, it's exactly what Rick, was do done. You like,
0: uh, do you like the way it looks? I do. I, we've had Jaffe on the show, we and, have, and, and I assume we've it kind of confirms
5: that Rivera, obviously,
3: in sort of the first—I don't know how many tiers there are—but they have in the, the first, same
5: three tiers that I basically the, have. The, the
3: Rivera in <laughs> <and> the first, <laughs> Martinez is uh, Martinez and Messina, presumably are in the lowest yes, tier. Yeah, correct. I would guess, and
1: Halliday's high third tier. Is what okay, I would yeah, yeah okay, high yeah. third yeah. tier. There's a debate, second um, or no, the third thing is, tier. So I don't I want to, don't want to, you know, belabor this conversation. But part of the problem with these models is that they're, 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 they do that. They're built to predict if you're going to get in, and as a result, are Right. they're leveraged on the borders. Mm. So 99% on the borders. Yeah, so when you build a regression model um and this is true for a machine learning algorithm and many a lot of the the, the not every data point brings as much weight into the model and cuz they're essentially averages of the y values. And the ones that are obvious on either side I have little weight because they don't add anything that they, that's so not already there. So is best
0: explaining what's happening at the margin. And that's what they're built for okay. because that's
1: where all the error is. This is my favorite. This, <laughs>
5: this is a great discussion because, again, since we're a business show too, the first ever paper I wrote in academia was when I was working at ETS and we had to figure out pass-fail. And I talked about this exact point that you need leverage right at the margin. And matter of fact, when you give people tests or you bring in extra scores or you try to get precision – it's not about the whole scale. It's right at the margin. Right at the margin. So, so is, it's is a it, great. This is an absolutely great point. So as here, it's the wrong model. It's the wrong
1: model. It's the wrong model. Is it, you're asking to tier the top three, the top, and you're Where, already in it. And you just have you've, your model isn't built to do that. So it doesn't. So, it
0: doesn't differentiate not as well. So well. well. Away so, from the margin. Right.
1: So I'd rather take all the people in the Hall of Fame and try to build a model for that. Um, and then and, and are, i don't know exactly how to do you that, that? Where are i don't to you get you your dv at that point you yeah. have to have eric telling you who's in which well that's 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 the hard part well we, we were right. just
5: talking about supervised and unsupervised supervised learning learned. before we got to you you really... score these people on some metric <laughs> yeah. and you you know then you'd have a gold standard if you'd like and then you or, could try to predict an them or
0: Cla- clarifying question real quick supervised machine learning it, it, the way you just described it just to, let's make sure everyone understands what that is unsupervised is you just throw the data throw the algorithm at the data and let it do it well no
1: no not quite it's a so because a lot of things just throw the algorithm the data even if it's supervised or unsupervised in a supervised setting you have labels and you're trying to predict the labels and your training data has labels already so the classic example would be well, on ours tier one
5: tier two yeah, tier three oh, right.
1: that's supervised that would, so, you've right, got some kind of subjective sub- subject or, or, or knowledge or, or yeah. truth it, does, yes. it could be an image. Detection. I wanted to. Det- I want to label. I mean, the DV I could see. be
3: kind of their how they got in, right? Yeah, their voting. You know, the fact like first ballot. I mean, the DV. You know, the tier one could just be by definition. So, first absolutely. ballot.
0: Okay, so supervised really is a little bit misleading.
1: Yeah. Well, it, it yes, it's a term from computer science. We would call that you know in, in statistics we just call we, we just call that classification or regression. Yeah, right. in, uh And exactly. it comes from the unsupervised when you don't have any labels. We used to call that clustering. Yeah. That's what we used to call that in statistics right. and management. We still so do. right, and marketing we call it. They do we it still call, call it clusters. Right, it. So, so computer so scientists, so computer much scientists called at it unsupervised, though. lacking a label. Now, just to to, to to complete the idea here, the the uh, one of the, the the computer science algorithms that really changed the modern way we think and do prediction is boosting, and we still use it. It's still one of the best ones today. This program called XG Boost, which is a modern version of a boosting or add a boost algorithm, which is Freund and Shapiro back in the late '90s, and they their their solution was. And there, there was to look at the margins and to build algorithms that were heavily weighted towards the yeah, most difficult. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually how they accomplished what they did. And that so that relates to, to the
0: uh, machine learning. One of my takeaways here is that this, is, and we, we have this challenge in quantitative analytics to how do you blend experts in? And I think that supervised unsupervised connotes that you're blending experts in. It has nothing to do with it but whatsoever.
5: Don't, don't in some ways whether we're going to transition out of football or not. Can't wait. We can, no no. I can, <laughs> I, it's great to talk about it, but. The same thing I would imagine Massey Peabody would find, which is the things that might predict, let's say your win-loss record, or the things that might predict whether you're going to make the playoffs, those variables aren't necessarily the same variables that are going to predict how well you do once you get there. And, you know, this is a known phenomenon. Like, if you predict who's going to get into the University of Pennsylvania at the time of admissions, this is a known problem. There's lots of variables that help predict that. And those are, in general, many of those are uncorrelated with how well you're going to do once you're actually here. And so it's back to Adi's point, which is we can build a model to predict who's going to get in the Hall of Fame. But it's not clear that those are the same variables that are going to discriminate once you're in. And mm-hmm. you could say the same in the NFL in the right. playoffs. Let, let's,
0: let's, take that. let's take that and ask the question then. I think you'd suggest that whether it's Massey Peabody or ELO or, you know, FPI from ESPN – Those models are built to predict performance against average teams, Mm -hmm. at the average. So if we're especially interested in how teams perform in the playoffs or in the Super Bowl, you need a model of how they perform against the best teams. And you're suggesting that might be different. Might be. Except for the Patriots
3: case where they beat them anyway – uh, they have basically the same record in the playoffs as they do in the regular season. It's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> well, that raises. We're going to talk about this as, at the end of the show, but the, the numbers, everybody said going in, well, yeah, the Quant said going in, the NFC teams are better than the AFC teams. When we get there, there'll be a small favorite from the NFC that's in fact how the sports book opened it and then within hours it had gone to the other side that's and correct. now the pats are sitting there at the favorite the
1: pats are the favorite and the, it's and not the, minus one or one and, one and a half mile. the last it's small. time i saw it's, and okay. it started
0: out small the other side but it transitioned like that mm-hmm. and the question of course and this is you know we can yeah. carry this for the next week the question is 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 that square money or is that shark money is it is that is it's probably
1: that, square money is, so that's it's so the, much money in, in the, the Super, Super Bowl, Bowl, that it dwarfs the sharps, and I think that they they make a lot of money with uh, with basically because they're squares betting that the, the, the uh, casinos okay. make a lot of money by okay. by go betting events. But, but Shane is going to say,
0: but, but our, our the Pats record it's, it's 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 a good in the playoffs as in the reg, regular season. Is there something? This is the question. We're a left, combination. Is there I mean, something special yeah. about the Pats? I mean, we saw
1: yes, <laughs> well, y'all,
0: y'all saw Sunday. What did you make of it? Other than that sports absolutely suck. <laughs> well, oh, you I, I'm about I'm the first say game?
5: This, I'm going to say one stat that if you had told me this before the game, I would have said not only did the Pats win the game, but they deserve to win the game. And they deserve to win the game. Which was, how many sacks did they have on Tom Brady? Zero. 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 Mm-hmm. The, pa- the Patriots offensive line not only gave up zero sacks against a team that led the league in sacks, but... Um, They ran for 175 yards in that game. So I'm going to tell you right now, there's only three people on the Rams that can determine the outcome of this game. And their names are Michael Brockers, and Sue, and Aaron Donald. If the three of them, I said if, If the three of them can get pressure on Brady, we've seen how you beat Brady in the playoffs. If the three of them can get pressure and stop the run, the Rams have a chance. Otherwise,
0: they have no chance. It's all a fair point, but why didn't they bring pressure? That last drive. I'll tell you why. That that last drive, when they they converted three third and tens, three third and tens, they didn't bring pressure on any of those plays. They didn't get within three yards of him on any of those plays as a result. How can you as a defensive coordinator do that? How can you lose your season? Letting them convert like that whoa, whoa, whoa. without bringing pressure on
1: Explanation. So what do you mean they didn't bring pressure? They weren't trying or they didn't They, try? they didn't bring extra they men. Guys. They brought their front
5: oh, the four extra. guys. They brought their front four. They didn't They didn't blitz anybody. They didn't
0: anybody extra. This is a fundamental decision a defensive coordinator makes at, for every play. It's like, do you bring an extra rusher or not? And so, of course, you take a risk when you do that. You leave people open, no? Well, yeah, you definitely have less people to defend, but can you—and look, it's counterfactual. We don't know, yeah. and it's easy for us to point blame. The guy did lose his job the next day, but sitting there watching it real time, and more—completely out of sample, like, yeah. they hadn't rushed him enough the whole game. And Correct. And they, they go into this last drive, you're like, is he going to bring pressure finally? Surely, now— Yeah, and I, I mean, the, the, the rest
3: of the game, you could argue, because they had done such a good job of establishing the run, that, like, you know, you can't just bring pressure. Every play, all game, but in that, I, I agree. In that last drive, where it was, it was kind of known that he would be pass, Brady would be passing. I, I think it's kind of questionable. Certainly, more than questionable. <laughs> are you sure we not that they didn't bring pressure? Are you Sure, we're not.
1: We're just resulting this into the b- a bad conclusion. I mean, I'm, I'd really like to know the answer. Is what, it really a bad thing? I mean, what does the well, data we, really say? Let's
5: say what we talked about last week. You even brought this up last week on the show. You were saying the the thing that's really bad, whether it's in the NFL, etc., is what you call. You called it a lack of entropy last week. Yes. You know, predictability, yeah. yeah. Kansas City's defense became, this is Cade's point, became ridiculously predictable. predictable. That's a disaster. And, and that's a disaster. <laughs> so I was shocked, regardless of whether it's the right play or not. Just, you blitz every now and then to make Brady think that there's more than four men coming. It just the, Let me just say also, let's also give, this is why Tom Brady's the greatest of all time. Again, you can easily say, well, he converted third and ten. All right. Find me another quarterback in the NFL that converted will convert every single time. It's a crucial play. That's the thing. That's the difference between him. Is Brady the same as he was five years ago? No, he's not as good as he was. But, wow, on those last, when it really mattered... I, you, I could have closed my eyes,
1: and it seemed like two thousand I mean, it was like 50 seconds, and they're like, here we go again. And everyone's going, okay. Yeah, but it's
5: a 41-year-old Tom Brady
0: <laughs> yeah. doing it. And something we take for granted, something that's easy to just forget is – how accurate he is. I mean you don't see him no. miss passes. No, and even that's what when, I'm you, saying. when you watch when you watch I mean he does a lot more than just make accurate passes, but that's one thing that he does. It's a big part of what he does and it's easy to take for granted. You watch Breeze, when Breeze is a phenomenal. He's a yeah. first year Hall of game Fame game player. Last no, week, he still but, misses passes mm-hmm. sometimes. Brady Especially in those critical moments, I mean, every pass is exactly. But you where talked it needs about it
5: again. Be. It's at the high leverage moments. I think Breeze may be the highest accuracy quarterback of all time. If he's not at the top, he's in the top three or four. Mm. But on those crucial moments, he misses passes, and Brady just
3: doesn't. Okay,
0: but are we? And now I'm going back to Adi's question: Are we resulting? And I think is, and, we are, are we, a little is this bit outcome bias. I,
3: I think we are a little bit. I mean, though Brady is. You know, kind of impressively accurate in these kind of clutch moments. I mean, all it would take is one drop, for, drop from a receiver, and then you know, all right. of a sudden we're talking. Like we have a Suffer very different a narrative I, right so can now. Can I link
5: our two conversations? Yeah. Who is better at their position positional time, Mariano Rivera or Tom Brady? Brady, Rel- yeah. no, relative relative to, to number two, three,
1: four, five, six. Yes. Yeah. Well, I would say, actually, would say, I would, I would go with Rivera that on that count. I would go with think Rivera of as well. Two. Who's the number two it's reliever? It's so hard because
3: Brady, Brady's position involves just so much more that's, that's than what, like I yeah, yeah. Rivera. That's Rivera, not, Rivera it. just has to opposite. throw that cutter every time. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> exactly <laughs> the opposite. I mean, that really? one pitch is better than any other pitch. But I mean, honestly... The closer as a, is is the... is the. I just thought I would try DH to link the, our two conversations to no, no, find no, out who's greater
5: at their position. I
3: think it's a valid question. By my answer is Brady just because his position is just so much more complicated.
0: This resulting... Question, this outcome bias question is important as we try to project what's going to happen in the Super Bowl. I mean, if we make Brady into a god, and if we make the Patriots into the best postseason performing team of all time, then of course you're going to take them in the Super Bowl. But if you say, look, any one of six plays, had they gone the other way, had D Ford not lined up in the neutral zone, I know, I know, that is great. Then they don't go, and then we don't have this conversation. No,
3: I know, and I I think we do need to protect ourselves against that. that. we can flip it both sides,
5: but if, you know, um, the Uh, Matt Ryan doesn't get sacked in that game. We could say Atlanta wins that Super Bowl if uh, Tyree. If they don't, if I know, but I said both directions. Yeah, look, you could make an easy argument: the Patriots. Tom Brady could be 3-5 and five in the Super Bowls, having lost his last five, if not for one play in both directions.
0: And this mm-hmm. is not to uh, underestimate them. Or to, or no, 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 them. no. I mean, no, so,
3: I mean the I'm inherent a... randomness or luck component of the game is huge, and we often... I, I think so, there's a psychological, like...
0: So, therefore, don't overreact yeah. to what yep. we saw in Kansas mm-hmm. City. And
3: I will t- I'll tell you, every Super Bowl the Patriots have played in has always come down to the seven. last second.
5: It's always come
0: down <laughs> to
3: the last second. And no, and out,
5: no, okay. They've never won more than six points, or Seven, yeah. Six or seven. They've okay, never, we, never, yeah. never we, we, before. That we go to the the Atlanta lost, game's the biggest. Nor margin. lost the Atlanta game in overtime was
0: the biggest margin. We we have to catch a little reaction to the Ram Rams Saints before we yeah. go away. Yeah, going to no, be
5: changes. I, That's what I think. Well, my my theory of the day was false negative versus false positive. And here's what I mean by that: If a flag had been thrown, okay, yeah.
1: they could have reviewed it. They
5: could have reviewed it. Yeah. If a flag is not thrown, you can't review it. And so what's so great about a negative versus positive? In other words, if the premise is that the umpire made or a re- a referee made a mistake, what does it matter what he called? The whole premise is if you've made a mistake, it should be reviewable. So as I was watching that play, obviously it was a penalty. The defensive guy thought it was a penalty. Everybody thought it was a penalty. I don't know why the act of the referee, who were questioning whether he made a mistake— threw a flag, didn't throw a flag, Wait. called him out of bounds or not out of bounds, or uh, he is, touches the football or not touches the football, what does it matter? If a mistake is made and the goal is to get it right, what does it matter whether something's called or not? Well, that's how I thought about the I play. Have a, I have a question and a comment. First, my question, is it
3: actually but, reviewable? It's
0: so much more sophisticated than the way I thought about it. All I thought about was I want to throw myself out of a window. Yeah. I don't know much was football really anymore. Bad. I had yeah. nothing that sophisticated I mean, to it was, say. It was, well, it was I mean, brutal. It,
3: it, if, if he'd thrown the flag the penalty uh, uh, passer you're saying pass review, interference pass is interference? not reviewable it's not reviewable it's not, if not he'd
5: reviewable I mean, would have helmet, obviously... helmet hit is something that okay, is reviewable let me, let me, but guys, which that was the more egregious penalty on that play when,
0: when you were watching this game before that call was there any part of you that thought Oh, I wish the referees played a bigger role here. Oh, I wish we had more reviews. No. No. Exactly. This was a travesty before we got to that play because yeah, of how yeah. ridiculously involved officiating was. So I when mean, you when you're going to complain about that and God knows it deserves complaining about. You have to ask, do you want even more going on? Because I'm watching that game, and I'm like, fucking hell, let's go watch soccer. This yeah. is ridiculous. So this is yeah. my favorite sport in the world. Now, so tell
1: me why, okay, I have a couple of arguments here that I'm wanting, your expertise. One is, is first of all, the, the, the tackler was brilliant. He made a, almost a decision along the way. He said, I'm going to lose this game unless I take him out. <laughs> just like, this yeah. is, game's over. I'm going to commit a foul and just make a guess. And I was brilliant on his side because it's part of the game. How, but my question for your
0: expertise is, how do the referees make? Misses. It's beyond me. I don't know. And there was more than one. And there were two calls they could have made. It is yeah. really—that's what I'm saying. Really, really hard to understand that.
1: It's up there with the perfect game blown with the first call. I mean, it's just oh, so bad, I <laughs> yeah. <me>. Yeah.
0: <laughs> At these moments, you know, it's extraordinary. <laughs> they would make that bad a call at such a critical moment. Yeah. I mean, that that call. So often we say, "But for that call, something would happen." But for that call, you know, unless they missed the a chip shot field goal. They, they go to the Super Bowl. All right, fellas, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Coming to you from the business radio, SiriusXM Business Radio Studios here in Huntsman Hall. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow professors here at the wharton school longtime collaborators on wharton Moneyball, coming up on our five-year anniversary just finishing up an open line segment that we could have gone on for a while apologies to those who tried to ring in we were too distracted by each other that time of year guys there's lots going on and that god there's this the, and when games do that to you we didn't <laughs> yeah, even get I to serena williams we got to talk about serena we'll save that for the last the Djokovic. last quarter of the show come on there's some things there's some things in this segment we have a return guest we're delighted to have frank frigo join us frank is the co-founder of edge analytics that's edj if you haven't seen him before edj edge edge analytics these guys consult with nfl teams ncaa teams in sports analytics they in the last year bought our friends at football outsiders so they're squarely in the middle of many of the analytics conversations frank welcome back to the show
6: thanks kate glad to be here
0: uh, where are you calling in from this morning, Frank?
6: I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, which is where our uh, our uh, headquarters are.
0: Right, right, right. Um, you know, it's so interesting that you guys, you know, so so much happens, of course, in New York or, you know, on the West Coast. And then we've got Pro Football Focus in Cincinnati and Edge Analytics in Louisville. We've got things happening um, there in the middle of the country as well. We're glad to have you. Welcome back. Last year, you caught our attention because there was this splashy article about the Philadelphia Eagles using your services. And um, since then, you've made even splashier headlines, buying our friends Football Outsiders. And I assume you've stayed involved, probably expanding your reach. Can you give us some sense of what's gone on for you guys since we talked with you last, in the last 12 months?
6: Yeah, we have been fortunate to have, with that publicity, had some additional uh, Inquiries from the NFL and NCAA team. so we've added a couple of uh, clients this year on the on the NFL side, which is great, and um, have had a lot of uh, a lot of weekly interaction. Uh, we produce a lot of detailed reports on all of their decisions, help them prep for the game, and then also as other questions arise and what if scenarios and so forth, we we consult on that.
0: Can you give us a sense of what it is you're doing differently than other analytics organizations my simple impression is that it's simulation based as opposed to you know something that's not quite that complicated is it true that the engine kind of the core of what you're providing is based on simulations as opposed to non simulation based analytics
6: that's correct so it's all simulation based obviously there's a lot of empirical data that goes into forming the way those simulations work it's a it's a it's an engine that's evolved over Gosh, really more than a decade. Um, I think that so the, the the simulation is a bit of a distinction where we look for, you know for forward looking on, on decisions, but I also think that our customization process, the way that we analyze how teams perform during the course of the season, and then create power indexes that inform those simulations and get calibrated each week, is. It's probably a bit of a, of a distinction for us.
0: So hold on, I missed that last piece. The customization you're talking about, is that for the client? Or are you talking about you're just tuning the model as you go through the season by better understanding each team with each additional week of data?
6: Yeah, so with each additional week of data and how they perform pass, rush, offense, defense, we're continually adjusting um, their, their expectations. So that adjusts the distribution curves sure. in the simulation um, and we've tested that pretty rigorously over time against, you know, market data, against obviously actual results to make sure that at the opening kickoff, when we're simulating a game, it's making a, a pretty representative argument of, of, of how that matchup looks. And then at any unique moment during the game, we can assess win probability. And of course, that's what allows us to do a comparative analysis on individual decisions to see how much... Uh, win probability is at stake and you know path a versus path B on a play choice how much um, how much it matters
0: so Frank t- tell us something about the advantage of having that full a uh, model a simulation based approach because let's just take Fourth down decisions, for example. So every team in the league has a card somewhere that says under what conditions they'll go for it on fourth down. Or we could take two-point conversions. Every team in the league has a card somewhere that says, you know, when the score is this with this much time, you go for two. Otherwise, you kick the extra point. Those aren't based on, for most for the most part, those aren't based on simulations. How is your advice going to differ because you've got this richer, con, this richer basis for it?
6: Yeah, I mean, so we you know we certainly can do lookup tables on a fourth and one scenario, but we've incorporated a lot of observations around you know other types of plays that we can use as proxies, such as third and short scenarios, that will inform our distributions. Then, as we're um, accumulating more data during the season about offensive and defensive uh, strengths and weaknesses, when we get into any unique situation during the game, if it's a fourth and one at midfield. You know, an average team might be expected to make it seventy percent of the time, or something in that vicinity. But in our model, it's it has context around it. We're recognizing who is, what is this matchup? How does that? How might that differ from historical averages in terms of success rates? But more importantly, what are all of the the resulting iterations that affect win probability? So the, by being able to play out the game to conclusion, when we do. A run on the first play from scrimmage versus a punt or a field goal, and looking at all those resulting scenarios and then weighting them accordingly through the simulation, I think we're getting a better perspective on how it impacts win probability. Something we talked about last time is point utility, and I think that's something that often doesn't get accurately captured in other models, where they're looking strictly at expected points, because football's really unique in that regard. As the clock decays, the, the different increments of scoring... At the model, the simulations are picking up on the value of those points in different mm-hmm. types of game states, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, a really important distinction.
0: There are times when a field goal would be huge, and there are times when a field goal would not, even if the expected points is the same.
6: Correct, and, and there's those very obvious scenarios at the end of the game, but when you back up the clock a little bit and you put in some different scores and some different types of matchups, those kinds of things get really murky. Um, it, it's, a, it's a tough one to just sort of assess you know, on the fly, and being able to simulate really gives you some, some unique perspective. So so
0: work with us a little bit more on that. You say it gets murky without the help of the simulation, and that's the value you bring. Is like, it's not murky for the simulation. It sees it real clearly. It might say, look, there's a lot of uncertainty here, but it sees it precisely. So give us, kind of, give us one broad characterization of not quite late game, call it third quarter or early fourth, fourth quarter, where the simulation might suggest doing something unconventional. So I'm assuming oh. this is going to mean, you know, a, a, like, you know, you shouldn't, you probably shouldn't kick that obvious field goal in some situations because even though three points helps you get up a little bit. It doesn't help you get up so much that it changes the utility of those points.
6: Yeah. So the, there are a lot of the really chunky errors happen in fourth and short situations when teams choose choose field goals for quote unquote guaranteed points. Right. Um, you know, there was there, there was the famous uh, advanced Joseph case this year where he gave up the largest error that we had had seen that we've ever recorded where he was trailing by four points and decided to kick a field goal late wow. in the game. I mean, wow. I think everybody watching the game knew that that was a bad decision. We just put a lot of context around it. So that's a pretty common theme, not necessarily minus four kicking three. Most coaches, right. I think, grasp that. But there are many scenarios where they're trailing by three, for instance, or they might be trailing by two, and they've got a fourth and short deep in opposing territory. And it, and looking in sort of a static mindset, oh, if I kick the field goal, that's a very high percentage decision. I'm going to take the lead all is well. But the game's not over yet. There's a lot more interaction that's going to take place. And often the, the counterintuitive piece there is that well, even if you fail, you might get some really advantageous resulting field position that then might result in uh, a three and out and a, and, a you know, getting the ball back again at midfield, or your ability to retain possession by converting the fourth down, burning more clock, keeping your touchdown yep. options open, and all of those things kind of coming together. What you see in the simulations often is that those are really clear decisions to, to be more um aggressive and something that that we do and i think i mentioned this last time as well is you know, it, at the end of the day we're trying to it, it's nice to know how much the error might be in terms of wind probability percentage but you're trying to get it directionally correct so we'll often go back adjust the parameters and say okay the model was recommending going for it on a fourth and one deep in opposing territory that's great we think it was 5% produced 5% more winds But what happens if we create very strong counter-arguments? Let's make that team a very weak rushing team. Let's make the opponent a very strong rushing defense. How does that change it? Are we still getting it directionally correct, even with those assumptions? If that's the case, and then it gets labeled as a high-confidence error. Got it. And uh, and we tabulate those over the course of the season. Interesting. um, But I think to your earlier question about some of the other not-so-obvious ones are um, fourth and shorts in your own territory. I mean it it, it's, it seems like a bit of a head scratcher, but a fourth and one you know on your own 20 yard line in some cases is clearly right yeah um, or or even deeper to the end zone um, your own end zone, just because teams are generally pretty big favorites to convert those when they've got open field in front of them, even with pretty conservative rushing action um, but often when you punt the ball. You know, you're giving them good field position anyways, and the the ability to continue that drive, obviously it's a very high volatility scenario, but the model doesn't really care about the volatility as much. It's just looking at what's producing more wins on average.
0: We're talking to Frank Frigo. Frank is the co-founder of Edge Analytics. They consult into NFL and NCAA teams, especially using their simulation-based, at least the core of it initially, is their simulation-based analytics. Frank, um, one play that, or
3: drive that really, I mean, we all we were all talking about it, uh, today from from the sunday games for perhaps the wrong reasons it's it's that drive with the egregious missed pass interference play in the new orleans uh, rams game.
1: Have right. you guys egregious
3: stu- is an understatement just for Yeah that yeah. Out. Um but but I think it I, I think it's hiding some very poor coaching decisions by Peyton on that on that particular set of downs because you know I think it was fairly obvious to a lot of us that you should be running in those uh, on, on in that scenario anyway as as opposed to passing. Um, do you guys kind of, have you kind of crunched the numbers on that particular, you know, drive and and, and, and those uh, play calls to sort of see like what, what the kind of optimal, you know, pass versus run kind of decisions are?
6: Yeah, so so certainly their passing on, on uh, first down seems to be a poor choice. I mean, if he does three conservative runs, I mean, even if he was to take a knee, I think he could have gotten the ball down to a high percentage field goal with about a minute left. Now, we're not necessarily... Recommending that as the best course of action, but certainly passing on the first down did not seem like an optimal uh, decision. So I, we noticed that as well. But, but Frank, um, Frank but, but, let, let,
5: let me build on that. This but, is Eric though, because I want to build on this point. Does your algorithm allow for what I would call short-term non-optimality? But longer term benefit, because the optimal thing to do, actually, in terms of win percentage, may be to pass on first down. So, how does your approach balance the short term, myopic, greedy optimizer? The best thing to do is this versus the longer term. Yeah,
6: yeah. I mean, that can get really challenging in the last couple minutes of a game, in particular. Um, You know, we generally simulate on the best information we have on the opposing teams and the most common behaviors in those. Situations. I think this is where I go back to. What you have to do is you then have to go back. If the model feels very strongly about a particular play call decision, to go back, adjust the parameters, and just see how much it gets affected. And then you can get a, a bit of an idea on how much some of these other things matter. How
0: robust but, but it certain, is.
6: But but certainly um, in a situation like that, we might. It, it might be easy for us to say, you know, you should run the ball there, burn more clock. But at the line of scrimmage, they could be seeing something very different where they could get, you know, a pass could be very, very effective. That That's always a tricky part of the, the discussion.
0: But so, so just to – I may be too simple to grasp this immediately, but one of the things Eric is getting at is this local search versus a more global search. Is, it, is there any way of making sure that the simulation isn't just climbing what they – you know, these local mountains as opposed to the local hills instead of the more global mountains? That, how – so I don't know where the tension is in the model itself, but do y'all play with that tension? Do you, do you have some means of making sure that it's exploring a broad enough space?
6: Yeah. I mean, I think we do. I mean, we've certainly made a lot of improvements in our, uh, we, we've, we've uh, added a lot of updates into our last two minute, and last four minute scenarios. Um, looking at play calling logic. Um, it, it is challenging because we have seen in the past where, um, the way that the, the model was built and the distributions and, and um, using those in late game situations doesn't always give you a fair assessment of win probability and that you have to look a bit deeper on the late game logic. So um, it, it, it is a challenge and it is something that we address and, and are continually trying to um improve upon.
0: Well, I think one answer might be that y- your approach is the global approach. That it's the it's the heuristic expected points, what's the best on this play thing that, you know, is usually what's done. I mean, that passes as advanced analytics these days. And you're saying, no, 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 you can't just look at this play. That's that's the local hill. You have to look at what would happen after this play through the rest of the game. That's the global... Yeah, I was thinking, Frank,
5: just to build on Cade's point, Sarah Bradlow again, I was thinking that the simulation-based approach might yield the global optimum, because exactly what it's going to do is look at every path after the play, simulate it out, and see which one is the best. So it might turn out, I I don't have a mathematical proof of are sitting here, that what you're doing may be the global optimum. And that was the intent of my question. And, And building on Shane's point, it might be why they should have run on first down, even though we we know generally running on first down is not the right play,
6: right? Yeah, I I totally follow your path there. Um, yeah, so it's uh, I, that's exactly right. I mean, we're looking at the overall you know path. I mean, what is the clock usage? What are resulting field positions? What what are the resulting game states that can occur? What's the distribution of those? And then how successful are you in all of those resulting game states? So. We're always looking at, I mean, everything we do is focused on win probability. Often we'll have conversations with teams and they want to focus on, you know, well, how often do I get a first down there? Or what's, you know, what's the average yardage that gain there? And those are, of course, all very important things. But we're always trying to look at it solely in a win probability context, which is a much broader view and looking at all of the resulting iterations.
0: Frank, one one element of this that might be really hard to get in there but seems important, we talk about it some on the show, but we just talk about it as a problem, we don't have a solution, is modeling the dynamic response of the other side. So you you understand how good a team is. You might even update how good a team is as you go through a game, but it would probably be hard to incorporate, though not impossible, to say how a team is likely to respond next series if you attempt a certain play this series and I, it's it, to really get the global optimum. It seems like you need that as well, because a lot of what these coaches are this is a thing that humans are doing. This is like humans being better at chess in the early, early era of artificial intelligence and chess. They're playing that dynamic. They're doing things that might appear suboptimal right now because they're setting up the defense for something down later in the game.
6: Yeah. There's no doubt that there are, <laughs> there's value in, in that. And, um, you know, it, it's not necessarily something that we're adjusting for on a play-by-play uh, basis. I mean, I think I, and I go back to just directionally trying to get a lot of these dis- decisions correct. I mean, there's so much, um, there, there's so many obvious situations where it's very hard to argue with the model's recommendation that several percentage points, even double-digit percentage points of, of win probability was right. left on the table. Right. But there's no doubt that in almost all instances, there can be exceptional cases that move that needle based upon how an opponent might respond or making a more, you know, doing something suboptimal that might later produce yep. a value based on a, on a reaction.
1: Yep, Frank, I want to ask a, just a real quick question. Um, I'm somewhat novice to football, so two-point conversions, are they underused?
6: Um, I don't know. I I think um, we generally do Other than the obvious cases, we generally don't see a lot of equity riding in the balance on these types of decisions. Certainly, Mm. you know, Mm. there are, there are situations that everybody talks about, for instance, and this has been pretty well proven. You can do it back of the envelope, you know, trailing by 14 late in the game, you score a touchdown. You're now within eight. Um, You should go for the two point conversion first. And uh, I think the only team I've actually seen do that in practice, you guys might have seen otherwise was Philadelphia. Yeah, they right. did it once this season. Yep, yep. Um that's a pretty clear provable thing. I mean, there could be exceptional cases. But the equity in the balance is you're talking probably a fraction of a percent yeah, of right. win probability. But it's still a very interesting choice. Whereas some of these fourth and short situations, like what Vance Joseph did, that's like that's over thirty percent of win probability.
4: Right, right, right.
6: So um, I do think that two-point conversions are being used better. It's a little bit tricky, right, because, you know, historical averages are something like 48% conversion rate, but teams weren't really using them as frequently maybe as they are now, and there's some argument that some teams could obviously be much better than 48% at converting two right. points. So it becomes a more viable option. But in general, in, in the more complex, Complicated types of decisions. They usually there's usually not a, a, a huge amount of difference in those. I think it, it a, might be it, somewhere in the vicinity of a percent. Yeah, it's
0: an interesting point. Th- getting it theoretically wrong, but the this, the Just impact, underdog. The impact isn't that big a deal. Frank, we have to let you go, but we appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning. We love the work that you're doing. We, we wish you the best with it, and we'll talk with you more down the road.
6: Thank you. Thanks, guys.
0: You Take bet. Care. Frank Frigo, co-founder of Edge Analytics, a consultant to both professional and ncaa football here in the states using their simulation based analytics that has been the first half of wharton moneyball we have a second half to go come back and join us after the break
6: you're listening to wharton moneyball
0: on business radio welcome back welcome back to wharton moneyball Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern. Cade Massey hosting this morning with all my buddies and faculty colleagues, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join us. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or email us, businessradio at crsxm.com. Email is a great way to reach us if you're hearing one of the times we're replayed over the next week or hit us up on twitter at w moneyball at w moneyball is our handle we get comments and questions up there that we try to bring into the show you're welcome to find us that way we also follow our guests it's a it's a good way to stay in touch with the people analytics world just off the phone with frank frigo of edge analytics talking football analytics i'm going to change gears now talk to another analyst of sort steve Guerra is ceo at Gaines group steve Started out in the military, and then he worked in his way into the NFL, and now he's working with a wide range of sports. Very interesting guy, doing interesting work. We're glad to have him on the show. Steve, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good
2: morning. Thanks for having me. A- Happy to be here. Absolutely. Are you
0: there today? Doing well. Where are you calling in from this morning?
2: Los Angeles. Right All right.
0: Early. All right. We're always impressed and appreciative when people call, call in from the West Coast. You got the you got the nine o'clock. That's the better of the two guest slots, Steve. We did do that for you, but we appreciate okay. we appreciate your joining us. Tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, we, we want to hear. I mean, you've done so many different interesting things. We want to hear about some of the latest projects you've got working. But I think we need a little background to get there. So, you started out in the military, and then you transitioned at some point to the NFL. Can you tell us about that background and how you made that transition, and what was your entry point with the NFL?
2: yeah absolutely so so I actually joined the Marine Corps um, just a couple of days after 9-11 um, you know just it was one of those things I was one of those guys who just kind of answered the bell when it, uh, when it happened how old were you Steve um, so I was 22 okay yeah, twenty years old. So just graduated University of Missouri, mm-hmm. um, with with a uh, English history degree. So really natural <laughs> fit for me to eventually go into analytics.
0: Well, you had um, so many other job prospects, so I'm sure.
2: <laughs> exactly. Uh, Don't want to eat ramen for the rest of my life.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but uh, but yeah, no. So I was in the Marine Corps. Um, you know, during the initial invasion and, and in 2004, I went back and was in Iraq for most of 2004, um, and that was actually like, like my first kind of. Um, uh, exposure to how tech can enhance performance, right? It was more or you know, more so on the battlefield at that point.
0: What's, an, what's the, an example of tech-enhancing performance yeah. that you personally experienced on the battlefield?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm going to use – I'll give you really super simple. I can give you a bunch. But RFID tracking, which is now used, obviously, ubiquitously inside of professional sports, we were doing that back in 2004 to basically track human beings on the battlefield and then mm-hmm. also – um, you know, logistics on the battlefield, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so some very, yeah, I, we were seeing some. T- I saw some tech back in two thousand four that we're just now starting to see used inside of professional sports or inside of other domains. Um, you know, so the the tech cycles, you know, can sometimes take a little bit, a little bit long to to finally reach. Does, does that mean we should be, be
0: we should be scouting what's happening in special operations right now to know what the NFL teams will be looking at ten years from now?
2: It doesn't hurt. We we look at that all the time. Yeah. You know, part of my current business right now, we look at what you know what war are doing right now, and and then projecting out what'll potentially be used, you know, in the next five or six years. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, we
0: say all the time that we think sports analytics is the cutting edge of people analytics, and that what we see in the way people hire and promote and compensate athletes is are some of the methods we'll see in non-sports organizations down the road you're just taking that one step further the the even further horizon is special operations or military it's really interesting all right so you got exposed to it that way and then what happened
2: so i got so i got exposed to that way and then um in 2006 i was leaving the marine corps went to san diego state which has a sports mba program um i'd actually accepted a job up in silicon valley decided i want to work in sports instead so um went to the and through, through my uh, at San Diego State, through my uh, um, just contacts there, I ended up going to uh, a conference and ended up meeting the assistant general manager for the San Diego Chargers. Who, at the time, you know, this is in the mid to mid to late two thousands, right? So everybody in NFL, Major League Baseball, you name the pro sports front offices, they just either finished reading Moneyball or they were told to read Moneyball. Mm-hmm. And so he asked me just a very simple question: Could you do Moneyball for us? And I
0: said <laughs> yes. You said sure. I'll go read the book now. I said
2: sure. I was like, yeah, <laughs> let's do some Moneyball. I mean, they you know, so they were looking for uh, they were looking for you know an intern to come in and just do some projects for them, um, and they were looking for a graduate level or elite or a, a, a you know someone who was getting a law degree or something like that. Um, and I think my background in the Marine Corps um, really kind of helped me kind of get the door open. Um, and my and then you know my 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 uh my training and and the m b a program certainly didn't didn't hurt as um either so yeah so that's how I got my start and then I went there and we started uh a couple of different um you know i i wanted to boil the ocean like a yeah. lot of people yeah. get into you know analytics especially young people who get into sports they want to come in they want to be general manager within eighteen months <laughs> yeah. um I had I I was really fortunate that I had some really smart you know scouts and people who had been in um, been in uh, in the NFL for a long time who kind of guided me along and and they gave me you know back then like some of the projects they we were working on were you know very simple things like contract length should we do three year deals or should we do four year deals yep. because back in the mid two thousands that was a huge deal for teams because if you had to put an RFA tender on a, on a player. Um, you know, and and you know, you're all of a sudden paying you know a heck of a lot more than you were. Um, you know, it could be like one and a half million dollars more than 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 you would um, normally if you wanted to protect them and keep them on your roster for the fourth year. Whereas if you had done a four year contract um, at the outset, you would have paid them incrementally more on a signing bonus, but you would have saved a lot of money in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we were doing some we were doing so and for the Chargers at the time. It was really important for them to be doing. Um, some thinking about the way that their roster was constructed, because in you know, two thousand six, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, that roster was loaded, absolutely loaded. So, so we were, so a lot of the so projects. The that I was is like, on, how
0: you? How you it's, a, it's an important roster management question. How do you keep? It's like the, uh, it's a, it's the curse of too too many good things. Yeah, how do you decide who to hold on to, who do you let go of, who's the most vital? These are really important questions, and and most teams aren't running at least at, especially at the time still true today probably they aren't running super sophisticated analytics to help inform those decisions. Um, you you transition at some point to the Browns, and so you've had you know inside the building experience with multiple NFL teams, but you were also pretty early in the wave, the analytics wave. What did you learn from that experience? You've gone on to do some really interesting things. I'm curious what you took away from your time with the chargers and the Browns kind of on the early side of, 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 of Moneyball. foot for the oh, NFL. Yeah, anyway. th-
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think the very first thing that I learned was that, um, relationships were more important than having the best information. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, best information is good, but if no one's going to listen to you, what's the point? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing I would say is that um, storytelling, the way that you actually present it back, and, and, and I know like this gets talked about all the time with analytics, right? But <clears throat> storytelling is a really critical component yep. because that's what coaching is at the end of the day. Coaching is about communication. It's about storytelling. Coaches are getting up in front of players and they're, they're, you know they're, they're trying to get a player to do something technically or tactically. And a lot of times they'll actually couch that that learnings with a story, right? So if yeah. you could do that, if, and that was kind of like my strong suit. My strong suit was the ability to frame things in a way to where I was kind of telling a story and it could be, you know, it could be over the course of a season if we were trying to do something very specific, um, either with the offense or defense, um, and trying to give some advice to some of the coaches. Um, and that, that was always, I think one of the, other. and then the, the last thing I would say is you need to build a culture of data to a certain degree, so you have to make it you know especially for um, people who don't have the time to crunch numbers and you know nor do they have necessarily the background to, to, you know, to necessarily handle like hard level math and, and some of the different you know and, and just like some of the more technical aspects of it. Um, if you can just build like a really basic culture of people understanding and using and, and then also meeting them where their culture's at as far as data and using statistics even. Kind of goes then you'll make a heck of a lot
0: more progress. I want to just emphasize what you' said. I love what you're saying you're saying a, 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 you didn't say a single thing about analytics. You said to be more effective as an analyst, you need to a emphasize relationships b learn to tell stories, and C help build an organizational culture of analytics. It's the culture around it more than necessarily the models themselves. So relationship, storytelling, and culture. It's extraordinary, really, to hear that from a guy who's you know making a living as an analyst, as a consultant on this very technical stuff into organizations across sports, saying those three non-techy things are the most important bits.
5: Yes. Yeah, so Steve, this is Eric Brother, I want to ask you, this is something we're dealing with at Wharton, but all over the country right now, which is, you know, if you'd like the retraining of our workforce, could you tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball how you said you came out with an English degree, um, then you went and got your MBA, but back 10 years ago, MBAs really weren't analytics driven. How did you just skill set yourself up to be able to even be credible in an organization where you could get an opportunity to be in analytics. And then, you know, today, as you look back, like, how much do you know? Do you consider yourself a quant person who's skilled up on lots of math and statistics? Or is it more you understand enough to hire the right people? I'm just interested in your thoughts on this, because many of our listeners are saying, I'd love a career in analytics. I don't necessarily have the background,
2: but how do I get into it? Great question. Um, so I'll answer the last question first. I am definitely not a quant person. So even inside of Games Group, um, I let the smart human beings handle the analytics, and I handle all the innovation. Um, so uh, so I've got we I've got my partner, and I've got our data team on one side, uh, and uh, and and I let them handle all the all the hard math and all the quant aspects of it. For, so for me. Um, when I was, you know, cutting my teeth in the league, um and making that transition. So first and foremost, like the transition from Marine Corps just to MBA was hard enough. And then MBA to um to you know, having some very basic, I would say statistical skills, not really, really analytics and certainly not quant skills, right? And so I had to I had to go dig deep and actually go find you know, other professors at San Diego State, and I had to find other people who I could actually go learn from. And I did that over really like a six month period where I really just schooled myself up as fast as I possibly could. And this is before like Linda and before all this online education existed where I could have actually, in my leisure time while I was getting my MBA, had taken a couple different courses on analytics, learned a little bit of R. Like, because now if you're, if you're in analytics and you don't know R, um, you can't, you don't at least have some programming skills. Um, i mean you 're pretty much dead in the water, right yep, yep so yep. so I mean like for me I was i i mean I went and I even took like this is in the early early days of Udacity, I took some you know programming classes, so I was always taking enough classes to stay just ahead of i would say like my bosses right, and so I knew I knew more than anybody else in the building, um but then I was constantly trying to pull in other people who could help upskill um upskill me. So like the projects that I was doing with the Chargers, like I was taking those projects and I was like, you know, so I I would work with the Chargers until like eight or nine o'clock at night, um, my very first year. And then I would go to the university and there was a professor there who would sit down with me and basically explain all the things I thought I knew. And then re-explain everything. I had no clue what the heck I was doing. Um, and so it was honestly just, it it was just cobbling together kind of before I, I had before, today where now we have all these options where you can very quickly get information you can very quickly have people skill you up I was literally just driving around the city doing that mm-hmm. um, and then just trying to find as many smart people I could put in my network who can help coach me
0: up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so again relationships this is, this is you know initiative doing your own development your own training but you're also pairing it with relationships and mentoring. Um, very interesting. We're talking to Steve Guerra. Steve um, has a long career now in analytics and innovation in sports coming out of the military and through the NFL. He has consulted to professional cycling. He's done sports investments as a part of a venture capitalist. He's now the founder of his own consulting group, the Gaines Group. You can follow Steve on Twitter at sfgera, Guerra's G-E-R-A, by the way. So at S-F-G-E-R-A. Steve, um, lots of interesting steps along the way. Let's jump to some of the highest profile stuff you're doing right now. You're working with FC Barcelona, the, I don't know, arguably best soccer team in the world, certainly one of the best known soccer teams in the world. And this is an organization that was just awarded sport techie of the year, sport techie team of the year. So clearly they're doing some innovative stuff. Can you talk about what you're doing with Barcelona, what you're doing in soccer and kind of the state of analytics in soccer?
2: Yeah, so um yeah, absolutely. Um so I I take uh, the state of analytics in in soccer, you know, globally is uh is not so dissimilar from, you know, I think the professional leagues here in the states. Um still a lot of learning. Um you know, some some teams are are further ahead than others. Um but those the, the other teams can quickly catch up if they're willing to put resource into it and really willing to kind of, you know, get into it because um, the, the plethora of human beings who are intelligent, and the ways that, and the resources that you have to actually build out these programs, um, have never been more plentiful and never been more abundant. Right. So, Steve, um, let me real,
0: real quick, let me jump in and just say, look, we're going to talk about soccer, but the stuff we're going to talk about is going to be applicable, <laughs> as you say, to these other sports, and especially with motion tracking. Yeah. The tech. I mean, one somehow these some of these European sports are just kind of more innovative and more open-minded. Some of this stuff, and so you often see the cutting edge there or the Australian teams as well, Australian league's football for Australian rules football for example. So, you kind of catch the cutting edge out there, but just because it's soccer doesn't mean it's unique to soccer. The stuff you're going to talk about is going to be happening in American yeah. football in a couple of years. It's already happening in basketball and hockey to some extent. So, I'm just trying to motivate the conversation more generally, but we really do want to hear some of the details of what you're doing with Barcelona.
2: Yeah, so 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 like soccer in soccer, like a lot of the analytics are really being driven around like spatial, how you use space and how you create space, mm-hmm. because uh, that's like terribly important, right? So like one of the things that um, that FC Barcelona did, has done over the last two years is they've really tried to actually um, put some you know um, metrics to and create some metrics around the way that you know Messi creates space. Does he create more space passively, or? Um, does he create more space actively? So is he, when he's running or when he's walking, and based upon miles per hour that he's um, running or walking, where does he create more space? and At what point of, in the field does he create more space? Now, that's good for them to know, but it's even better for them to teach other players on our squad, right? So so a lot of the analytics that, um, that we're seeing is the most useful, especially around motion tracking data and especially around uh, where players are on the on the pitch at any given point in time um, are being used to, to not only you know enhance tactics from the coach's perspective, but really being used in the academy levels to then teach you know even, um, younger kids. Um, how players are specifically using space or specifically operating on the field.
0: Do you think there's some element of of this Steve, do you think there's some element of this that the players themselves understand only tacitly that we might actually learn some things from watching them on the pitch, tracking them that we wouldn't have learned had we asked them. Like, could you have told Messi, "Hey, we've yeah"? Noticed-
3: I, 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 just to follow up on that is—is is, is what Messi does with his amazing ability to create space. Is that just so intuitive to him, or is—is mm-hmm. is, has he been kind of like—is—is is it a kind of a, a practiced skill for him?
2: I, well, so it's—I uh, think it's both. Right? It's, it's born over, you know, years upon years of experience, but then also like moments upon moments upon moments of experience, right? It's, it's like a, so I think about, think about it this way. Like in most athletes, if you've played a sport at some point in time or another, like if you're going across the middle, you will, for a, for like, say you're a wide receiver, right? And you're going across the middle and there's traffic and you need to throttle your speed down or throttle your speed up based upon where you think the ball is going to be. Right. So that's just you adjusting yourself in space and you only know how to do it because you've done that route, you know, 150 times, a 1, thousand times, whatever it is. And you get better at it every single time because you all the different patterns, because there, there are literally, you know, some, everything between the quarterback's head position to, um, you know, where the defenders are to where uh, where you are, especially on the field at that point in time, you know, whether to speed up or slow down. Right. And so that's what players are intuitively doing all the time, especially now, let's take that into soccer. Right. In soccer, they're constantly just trying to find and create and make space either for themselves or for other people. And so you're literally you have, you know, 20, uh, 21 other players on the field that you have to be concerned about. Right. And you have to be monitoring them at, at any given point in time. And then you have to at, at the same exact time, like be understanding where the ball is. And so it's very complex, right? And so for a coach, to I mean, and coaches and players over time and kind of, the, you know, they build this experience up, they they get their pattern recognition really honed in, but it's, it's intuition. We would consider it intuition, right? Now, the player tracking data allows us to start putting metrics on that. And then allows us either to upgrade that intuition, that
0: focus intuition, in or to teach it better. So, Steve, it, it strikes me though that it might be hard, as powerful as these algorithms are, it might be hard for them to understand all the different considerations. I mean, it, it's it, to what extent is this? Are you seeing this? I wanted to first say, kind of glorify this moment in machine learning, in that we might learn something about creating space on the pitch that we weren't training players on before because it wasn't quite so explicit. But then I started wondering, well, you're talking about all these other factors. Is machine learning really going to capture all that goes into a lifetime's experience-based intuition for where that comes from? And it strikes me that it must be this back and forth. It must be that you need an organization that, that is willing to do the tracking and learn from the tracking, but also turn around and say, we can improve the tracking if you actually talk to Messi and you talk to these experts about all the things they're considering that may not be in the model yet.
2: Absolutely no, absolutely and and yes and so yes, eventually these models will get pretty crazy because of the amount of variables that we're going to have to put in them and the amount of data that we're going to have to actually start collecting. Um, and 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 by you know and, and so, by the way, we have to try and make that largely invisible to coaches and athletes, otherwise they won't necessarily just you know. Cause, I mean, how many athletes really want to strap on a boatload of sensors? Because like, let's like let's think about something right here. Like in order to really understand. How messy and how the best football players um, on the planet <clears throat> look at the field we have to understand where their eyes are and where they're really looking right so I would like literally need to put these small microscopic cameras on every single player to understand where they're looking at any given point in time because that's a variable that's incredibly important let me if just I say real mesh. quick
0: there was a paper I think Luke Bourne did a paper last year at MIT and the whole point of the paper was to build an algorithm that assessed the direction the player was facing. I mean, the whole point right. of the research paper was what position is this guy? We know where he is on the field, but we don't know where he's facing. So you're saying that's so critical for understanding what they do and, wh- and what they why they're doing it and what they do that 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 requires that much effort. And you're saying, well, it would be even better if we just put a camera on him. But you can't put a camera well, on him. So what are you guys doing to navigate that, that boundary, how you can strap these guys up? To maximize what we learn without inhibiting their play.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, and, that, and that's I think like the that's where the innovation component of what we do really comes in because the data is the thing that fuels all the insights and fuels kind of you know decision making. Um, but the innovation component of of what we do as as our business and what we do with like FC Barcelona is just constantly trying to turn and trying to find novel ways and novel techniques to start looking at this um, <clears throat> uh, and start trying trying to create more data sets right so am i on the hunt for like little small microsoft cameras that i can put on athletes eventually heck yeah <laughs> is that going to be a viable solution probably not unless someone can figure that form factor out right mm-hmm. um and the same thing is like just where they're facing um like trying to figure out ways to use cameras that are either inside the stadium or outside the stadium and then basically um uh, or around the field i mean um in order to um, in order to figure out directionally where they're looking, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're constantly looking for companies and looking for people who have, um, you know, interesting techniques for, for trying to figure out ways to solve it. It could be hardware-based or software-based,
0: right? Well, it's interesting that in this world everyone's inundated with data, and in some sense we haven't yet figured out how to sort and deal with all of the motion tracking data we have. Even in that world, you're saying, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find more data. And, in fact, one of the only edges that might be available still is to be the first to get new data, a new way of doing something. It's, it's kind of humbling, actually, to think we haven't really come to terms with what we have in front of us, and you're out trying to find something new.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, we got, we got to do more with what we currently have. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but as... As machine as our you know as machine learning catches up and continues to evolve, as AI continues to evolve and as an overall you know, branch, um, I think you're going to start to see us start to catch up, and then we're going to then we're going to be wondering, oh hey, well we need to do X, Y, and Z too, right? It's not so different than like, go back ten years and like everybody when you looked at just just whether or not NFL coaches were going to go for it on fourth down, right? And there were all sorts of reasons. Uh, you know, and there are all sorts of reasons why coaches would and all sorts of reasons why coaches wouldn't, right? And now if you watch NFL games on, on Sundays, my God, it's like, you know, it's like every single NFL coach is all of a sudden like a you know, money ball convert because the <laughs> amount of coaches who go for it and fourth down now, I think, at least, you know, anecdotally to me, it seems like I hadn't actually run the numbers, maybe I should, but it really seems to me like it's gone through the roof, right? And, so, and the best coaches seem to be the ones who are going for it more often. Um, but this was and in, in, in that topic right there, not so dissimilar from like motion tracking topics, just two totally different topics. It'll evolve as we get more information over time.
0: Yeah. The, it's the, the, the translation from the technology to the decision making is an entirely another bridge. Right. And one of the reasons we think we have seen an uptick in fourth down attempts is because Doug Peterson did a lot of it last year on his way to winning the Super Bowl. So it wasn't that the Steve and it Garras, worked. Yeah. yeah and exactly and it worked out. Yeah. It wasn't that the Steve Geras you know, of the world convinced these guys and Lord knows we've been trying to convince them for fifteen years. It's that there was a high profile successful anecdote that ends up convincing them. So it's a it's a it's an interesting chain from, you know, measuring, you know, what a guy's doing on the field to understanding it, to translating it into practice to ultimately changing the decisions that the Changing the, the culture. Way.
3: Changing the culture of the Under which the decisions are made, Because really. usually it,
0: it's the culture yeah. that's going to drive it ultimately. Listen, Steve, we need to let you go, but we appreciate you taking the time to be with us this morning, especially from the West Coast. Um, love the work that you're doing. Wish you the best with all of it going forward.
2: Yeah, happy to do it. Thanks, Gary. Right. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Have a good
0: day. You bet. Right. You too, though. Steve Gera, CEO at Games Group. You can follow him at SF Gera, S F G E R A, at S-F-G-E-R-A. Steve's a longtime analyst. Innovation expert coming out of the military and an NBA and working through the NFL, consulting into the professional cycling world, and now doing a range of things, but including soccer and FC Barcelona at Steve or Steve Guerra. All right, fellas, that has been three quarters. We have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., Kate Massey hosting this morning with my full set of collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. Danielle Bruno on the soundboard, bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour, as she does in the middle of every show. Thankful for Danielle. You guys can join the show. Give us a ring, one wharton That's 1-844-942-7866. Or email us, businessradio at com, Or hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We're going to be open lines for this last half hour. We have a little bit longer last quarter than usual, which is nice because we've got some things to go through. Just off the phone with Steve Guerra talking analytics and innovation in a number of sports, but including soccer, doing cool work with FC Barcelona. It is interesting, isn't it, guys, how much of innovation we see, how much more kind of innovation and openness we see. Overseas in other countries and other sports. Um, but, you know, one of the things he said. I mean, could that most it just
3: be, I mean, I mean, just with soccer specifically, could it just be that, you know, the most innovation is where most of the money is? I mean, soccer is not just overseas, but it's like the biggest, it really is internationally That's, the that'd biggest.
0: Be a, that'd be a very important variable in the model, right? But yeah. how do you explain, say, Australian rules football? I I can. (laughs) Like the best in sports Or the Canadian
3: Football League, you know, like being ahead of the American Football League as far as, you know, making pass interference reviewable and all these types of things. They do. I didn't
4: know
0: that. I didn't know that either. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that Steve said that jumped out to me was that he's seeing technology in sports now that he saw in the military 10 years ago. That that the military might be the further horizon for technology on – Managing people and optimizing performance—really intriguing. Well, idea. it
5: doesn't. It only. It doesn't surprise me only in the sense that you know one of the big technologies that's coming out nowadays, or these people think, is driverless cars. I don't know if you guys know, but that was started by the government. Um, it was started 25 years ago. The government started funding people for driverless cars. It's something I teach in my MBA class. And so, sensor and motion technology has been probably the largest single R&D investment of mm. the government especially on the military side over the last 25 years. So mm. it's not that surprising that therefore a natural extension of <clears> someone that spent time in the military using that technology would be to say I've got to invest in motion tracking and that kind of data and the methods that therefore go with it is going to be a big part of sport. So I'm it's not surprised nice to see surprised. those
3: trillions of dollars trickling down to us and, and the you know. <laughs> 5G chips
1: and stuff. <laughs> it, The military has known about technology way before the public knows about it. And I remember as a kid, there was a huge innovation. It's gigantic today, the public key cryptography, which is behind every, public key cryptography, which Mm -hmm. is behind almost every computer communication that we do. All the security is is public key cryptography, which allows, you don't have to exchange a secret key, which was historically in in wartime, you had to exchange the secret key in person and it allows this to be done in public. And it is essentially provably secure. It has to do with some issues of, of computing power, some transformations are, are possible forward, but not backwards. The public knew the, the, the military knew this before the public did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's some nameless individual who figured this out, who's who has had to live his life in a complete obsc- obscurity mm-hmm. when the people who invented this publicly in the universities are, are, are all you know, superstars of the academic mm-hmm. world.
0: Mm-hmm. Really interesting. It really calls the question, what's going on right now? Like, what could we learn yeah. about better running people in, non, in, a, in, in normal organizations? There are kinds of organizations that our students go into, the kinds of organizations most people work in. What could we learn about from special operations, say, and the way they manage The other teams?
5: thing that Steve said that caught my eye was, you know, in some sense, I, I wrote down this quote. Like, if you were going to build a soccer team, do you want, you know, the old rule is, I need someone that can run forever. Well, maybe he's questioning that. Like, maybe I need somebody with high variable speed as opposed to somebody. Do I want a marathon runner or do I want a sprinter? And so that's when he started to say, how do you create space? I'm thinking maybe someone that's incredibly fit but is – you know, it's back to our entropy, has low
1: variability in their speeds, maybe that's not what you want on the soccer mm-hmm. field. But I'm really interested to know, at a certain point, there's going to be an, an innovation in soccer that we can talk about. And I'm still waiting for that. I mean, if, and uh, in other words, there's lots of tracking there. They're doing all kinds of stuff there. But I'd love to have it condensed down to something. This is what they used to do. And now this is what they do. And we learn that because of Analytics.
0: I do think the space thing you raised is one of the is one of those. It's in that direction. But anyway. that's about
1: halfway now. So that's, what that's what right. do we need to do now? What, yeah, what's yeah, the, what
0: what do we do with that understanding? That's right. And I'm but, still waiting for it. Mm-hmm. Well, how about
5: someday we'll find out we'll find out a metric in soccer that will be not goals scored, not attempts. It could be amount of space created. Yeah. And this person creates a huge amount of right. space. Yeah. That would be a, tr- you
1: would that be would do happy it. with yep. that as an innovation, and a matter of fact. And how to predict it, and how to build it, and train it, and things so, like well, so that. So the, yeah. fir-
0: the first is, is that something that happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Luke Bourne has done work, the MIT paper that, he, that went into the finals last year um, was exactly on that issue. So he's the one, as far as I know, who first wrote down that Messi, when he's walking, isn't just taking a break. He's actually creating space when he's walking that's how brilliant the guy is all right fellas interesting uh, one yeah. of the one of the you know headline grabbing sport events in the last 24 hours and a stunning one is what happened with Serena down in the Australian Open so I know Eric came and worked up about that so she was up five one in the third serving for the match she had match point up five one Serena and and she and she not only doesn't convert that match point she ends up losing the set. And Eric. doesn't
5: win another game. So what was interesting about that... And This is the quarterfinals. Correct. There are
0: and three. she was playing a woman who used to be number one. So this is a legitimate opponent. They're Pliskova.
1: Okay. Well, my understanding was just there were nine women who were capable of becoming number one if they won the tournament.
5: And Pliskova is now one of them as well. Yep. She's one of them. What's interesting about that is um, if I had told you that Serena Williams would be up 5-1 and 40-30, by the way, yeah. and serving... And by mm-hmm. the way, she hit an ace... And the umpire called a foot fault. I just want to also point that out. Like in some sense she wasn't walking towards the net like the match was over, but she hit an ace of which a footfall was called and then
0: it was so, c- by the way, that's that's a little bit like just, you know, hypothetically, intercepting a pass with one minute left ahead of the game but then having a guy line up in the neutral zone. It's, well, really, yeah. it's really similar yeah. to that. As the I game said, was that,
5: over. As I texted but he Shane. did line up in the neutral I know, zone. As I texted And did she actually she did football. Have a football? So it was yeah. unclear. It was very, very close. And the thing is, it had not, I mean, the question is, do you call that at that point of the tournament anyway? What's interesting is she got broken then. Not only did she not win the match, she didn't hold her serve, the rest, and so she lost 7-5. She was up 5-1, 40-30, and lost 7-5. So it made me start to realize it's what I've been saying all along. So let me give you some other stats. Roger Federer lost to a guy that's playing um, Nadal coming up. Tsitsipas. Cits, Tsitsipas, Cits, 20 years yeah, old. pass yeah, very... Let me tell you a stat. Um, Roger Federer on break points in that match, 0 for 12. Wow. Phil Mickelson lost this golf tournament just recently by one stroke this last week. He was leading the whole way. He missed eight putts within 10 feet. Oh, goodness. So I want to go back to the comment I've had before about the buy. Bi- and then let's contrast that with Tom Brady. So, again, I want to point out that for most people, it's not that a 41-year-old quarterback cannot perform well in certain times. It's just that to consistency. do it. It's the consistency. Yeah. If you, Federer laments not losing the match. He laments the fact that when it mattered most... He couldn't deliver. When Serena, at age 37, mattered the most, she the way, had five match points. She not only didn't convert that one, but she had five match points of which she couldn't convert any, any of own. them. And so, again, it goes back to my point. I think what age robs you of is the ability to, I'm not saying turn it on, turn it off, but Serena Williams and Roger Federer are the two greatest tennis players of all time. But at 37, when the matters the most... It's hard for them let to me, perform. Let me
1: respond to, in contrast to, to Brady, and I'll take it to you guys to to criticize this. I'm not sure if it's right, mm-hmm. but in tennis, it's physical, and physical ability is is paramount. In and it seems to me in football, particularly with what what uh, Belichick does and what Brady does, is that the brain power is so important. The decisions that a quarterback makes, and the way they line up, and the way they read things matters and there's a bit of a compensation obviously if your arm well, goes I, I, I just, and so i'm just wondering but, but whether but or not I, I, I as t- he gets to be 41 no, no. he learns enough to compensate i
3: guess right i mean I, one could just counter argue that there's a mental there i mean I, I feel like i feel you know there's a mental deterioration that comes with age as well so
4: you know <laughs> it's not it's not just a physical
3: deterioration right and so you're you're uh, you're kind of yeah. arguing that somehow his mental acuity or his expertise it's just experience. or experience—I mean, how much? I mean, he's always in this situation. I don't. I mean, I'm, I still think it's impressive that kind of his mental decision making and all these kind of split second things that somehow hasn't
5: deteriorated like it. Yeah, I think uh, one that so I, it would. football's unforgiving in the following sense. If I agree with what you're saying, Adi, in principle, but let's say Tom Brady's velocity on his foot on the football he was throwing to Edelman to Gronk, etc. Let's imagine it was just ten percent less. ...than it was five years ago. It's not impossible. I I, I just said if for a second. That would make the difference between a ball getting picked off and a ball not. So I agree with you, experience matters. But if he can't deliver the ball in a small window with high velocity... I don't care how much experience you have. You're basically turning someone with four six- – and, and just just to take Audie's side uh, in that particular one, he does get intercepted more now. He he does
3: throw pass. He's not as accurate overall. It's just in these kind of high-leverage moments, he just somehow ins- – yeah, enters God I, I mode. Want, I want to
0: come in on Audie's side here too. It seems like it's beyond – I think it's beyond argument that there is a bigger component the mental game is a is a bigger component in mm-hmm. the quarterback's performance than it is in the tennis players, and that's there is a mental game yes. in the tennis clearly, but I don't think there's any question that there's a bigger piece, and that therefore that there is more room for compensation. You it you kind of has to be.
1: You talk about a, a, you know, a match point. This is where the athletes get to put everything they have into protecting or winning this point point. and one thing i think is true about athletics is you can particularly in a highly athletic sport you can you need to save you need to conserve you need to you know rev it up when it's when it's all on the line and i think when you're 37 years old you don't have it anymore to do that compared to your younger opponent
0: I don't disagree with Eric's premise at all. I like – I mean, I think – I don't like it necessarily. I think it's interesting. And he's, he's argued this for some time. I do want to offer one – it's just an anecdote. I like – what you did, Eric, was you said, here are three examples where we have small – they're not anecdotes. They're small samples. And maybe that's more meaningful. Than, I have one anecdote. And it's related to this thing. Shane asked the question – or one of y'all asked the question of Frank Frigo on the simulation and football analytics of – you know, the, the Sean Payton decision-making on that last drive, and especially mm-hmm. that first down pass.
5: Yeah, the
3: not running that, it there. Two things
0: about that first down pass. It was an extremely high percentage play. They probably complete that push in 90% of the time.
5: True Breeze threw a bad pass. Second, he threw it this, at the foot of the his receiver.
0: Brees threw a horrible, horrible pass. pass. This is This is the yeah. anecdote that fits in with yep. these other samples you were coming up with. This is an older guy who's one of the best quarterbacks that's ever played, and he completely bit it on that... Critical play. And, you know, frankly, if they convert that, if he hit and throws a normal pass, they probably get a first down in this series. They probably go to the Super Bowl.
5: Absolutely. And, and that is my, my, again, that just reinforces my point. And, you know, what's interesting is I've always wondered the following. And I finally got an opportunity to ask a world class athlete, but in a lesser sport. So I finally, uh, through my son, I'm I got to meet the number one squash yeah. player in the world. Yeah.
0: Okay. And I asked him... A so qu- hold on, who is this person? How old are they? Where they live? What nationality? So he's Egyptian,
5: and the last name is El Shorbaghi, is the is the gentleman's name. He has a twin brother, so I don't know which of the two. I, I don't remember <laughs> the name. Mohammed, I think it's El the How- number one player in the world. He's Queen. 28 years old. Okay. He's been the top squash player in the world for five or six years. And I asked him, I had an opportunity to meet him because the U.S., the, the, the top tournament was played here at Drexel this year, and I asked him a very simple question. It relates to my thought about Serena or Federer. And I was surprised by his answer. I said, let's imagine you have match ball and you have to win this point. Is there a formula you have that if you serve it in a certain way, if you take a certain shot, that you know you're going to win that point. In other words, can't Serena figure out a way to win the point? In other words, serve it wide, come to the net. You know, There's some formula where maybe it's about what Adi was talking about off there, which is there's some pattern that you've learned where if you play this pattern, it doesn't matter what the other person does. You have a 90% chance of winning. And that's what I asked him, and he said, absolutely not. <laughs> he said, unfortunately, that's not the way sports works, especially at this highest level. Because, first of all, he said, if I had this, my opponent would know that I'm trying to do this. That's the first thing. And second, he said, there's, he was answering, actually answering like a math person. He said, there's too many variables. So you're wanting, so the guy serves the ball. Where exactly is the serve going? What exact shot am I taking? Because that's what I kept thinking as I was watching Serena. I'm like, can't you just play a certain pattern of shots and win one point? And the answer is no. Right. You just can't. Right. So I was shocked by his answer. Yeah. But I, as I was watching Serena lose from up 5-1, 40-30, I'm like, at some point, just hit, I'll make it up. Hit a drop shot. Hit a soft backhand to the deep corner and then charge the net. What was also interesting, this relates to what we've been talking about. She did not come to the net at all. At the end, you go back to the Chiefs not taking an aggressive stance. I was shocked. One of the greatest net players of all times. She was not beaten on passing shots. She would not come to the net, even though her ball she was taking from the midline. And then she would retreat. I'm like, wow. what
0: happened? Wow. Why doesn't she
5: go to the net? I was shocked by her choice of strategy as Re- well.
0: Really interesting. All right, guys. Let's, let's change gears to a couple other sports just to kind of pick up what's going on. We've talked baseball, obviously, at the top of the show because of the Hall of Fame. But one of the interesting stories in baseball right now is what's going on with free agency, or more importantly, what's not going mm-hmm. on with free agency. What do y'all y'all pay closer attention to this than I do? What do you make of what's going on? And I mean, are these big Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, these these huge guys that the market seems to be kind of waiting on? Are, is something changing? Are they losing? Are they losing leverage? Are are the teams we thought going to sign them not going to sign with them? What's going on?
1: Well, partly it's uh, both of them kind of have problems, and Mm -hmm. they're asking for enormous contracts. So you're asking for the moon, and they have some major issues. So Machado has some personality problems and issues on the field that make him maybe a little unattractive and he wants 300 million dollars will he get that probably not will he end up with 200 million probably so i think this is a really a cat and mouse game and
3: and and, and i think you know specifically it's not even sort of sort of the massive amount of dollars per year it's the length of these contracts right. that these of right. uh, top free agents are seeking what, what are, they what are you, younger what are they but they're, ten looking, years? they're, looking, they're looking, looking, for looking for 10 year ten contracts years. and 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 you know Harper Machado we kind of convince ourselves we are we'll get them right. because they're younger but i think again like basically i think what's happened in baseball is Every team is smarter now. Like every team has the analytics, has whatever the expertise to know that these ten-year contracts are not
5: a good idea. Yeah. And how old was A. Rod <laughs> when he signed his ten-year contract? He couldn't have been. He, he was in his thirties. No, no. Way. With the Yankees or no, no, year? not with the Yankees. No, with the, the original ten-year, two hundred seventy-five million-dollar right, right, right. contract. Yeah, yeah. he about was that de- about that age. Yeah, yeah. 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 So again, a different time people were no, willing. Uh, that's my point. Yeah. my point is, I can't. Ama- it's what's interesting. There'd be a team right now that would rather pay either one of them five years and forty million a year. Oh yeah, than ten immediately. years immediately. Immediately, immediately they Half would the pay teams to do that. Half the teams because would there's pay so them. many examples of that failing. I mean, I, I mean, yeah.
1: I, I remember an article that, that actually that that we wrote together yeah. some time ago. We were doing about home run forecasting, and we fit these age curves. And I remember one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that came out of that was a very simple statement: never sign a, a center fielder. Who's 30 years old to a long contract? Because mm-hmm. at 31, they just fall off a table <laughs> and they just get yeah. bad. And it turns out that great players do not go into their mid, past their early 30s at with any value. And and that is something that I think almost every team understands now. Mm-hmm. But yeah. part part of the problem with with Hi- with Harper is he has some, some ups and downs. He's had some bad seasons. Yes, I mean not and 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 he's had some great seasons. He, the shift is, looks to be killing him. Um, and a lot of major league players it seems to be are responding to the ship with changes in their play but not Harper he's still doing the crap that he does um, and maybe he'll learn and, he'll, and he's well, 26 look, years I old think it, this is
0: intriguing as an outsider I, I don't know of any sport that's managed to not overpay for the top free agent in a given year I mean you tell me the last time any non-salary
3: cap sport yeah because I mean even football the, no
0: even the salary caps guys and ba- and, they, they overpay the top free agents some team but, some team is going to overpay for
1: them yeah. no that's right because of the cap. Basketball, basketball really Basketball
0: is maybe the case where they, they, the top guys actually end up shaving some yeah. in order to bring in other guys. So that may be an exception. But you're telling me that the market... If soccer
1: does it, I would guess. It's way overpays. In, in, well, no.
0: you know, we had this conversation with those guys last last year. Whenever a market seems to overpay... For you know, twelve straight years, you might start thinking maybe you're not accounting properly for the value of the player. But y'all, I'm just intrigued by the idea that yeah. baseball is so smart now, and it may not be
3: that. I, I mean, that that's one narrative, right? No, I it, mean, make, it
0: makes sense because the the agent. It's the agent-driven yeah. thing. They're coming from a previous era, and of course they're going to ratchet back from that very slowly. They're going to concede very slowly off of what has been the norm mm-hmm. before. And if the league gets truly changed, you might expect this kind of tension. I think that's a really interesting analysis. All right, what about the NBA? What's going on in the NBA right now? Well,
5: well, the Golden State Warriors, they're, they're back. back. They're back. They've won eight straight They've now got the second uh, highest plus minus in the league. They've passed everybody but the Bucks. The Bucks are still at plus 10, but the Warriors are now at plus 6.8. And so, plus 10, my god. The Bucks are at plus 10, but, but let's be clear. The last couple of years the Warriors were in that zone as well. Mm-hmm. But the Bucks have to be at some point we have to start thinking that the Bucks are real in the sense of
0: well, they're pl- 34 and 12. That seems like a substantial sample I assume they've played a reasonable schedule.
5: They've played a reasonable schedule, and they are, again, they are plus 10. No no one's believing the Bucs are going to beat the Warriors. Um, I'll go back to my comment. I think because the Celtics are worse than I thought of this year, I think the Rockets are definitely worse. I was just at the Sixers-Warriors game, the Sixers-Rockets. Sixers Sixers played without Jimmy Butler and blew out the Rockets. The Rockets are— They have one great player. Well— that's what I wanted to get to, yeah, so, by the so way. Tell,
0: I want to hear Sorry. more about that. You were at that game? I, I was. I, I only heard kind of all It was a blowout.
5: I did watch some of it. Yes. Yeah.
0: It's a, that's shocking, right?
5: Well, so what the Sixers did was very easy. Um, they, Without Chris Paul... By the way, Chris Paul, their second best player right, is injured. Him. They're injured. Yeah. So what they did was very simple. Every time James Harden crossed half court from the first quarter onward, they double teamed him, made him get rid of the ball. And so now... By the time it—this got this is the great thing about defense. So, yeah, he'd get the ball back, but he'd get it back with three or four seconds left on the clock, and his options were much less at that point. So James Harden could have scored 60 in that game, and they still would have lost by 30. He had basically 40 points by the end of the third quarter, but the Sixers were up 30. So, again, when you only have one great player— let that player score 40. Let him score 50. It doesn't matter. The rest of the team just wasn't going
3: to be like the It's like,
5: like the late stage kind of Kobe Lakers
3: was the same thing. But, he was scoring like 70, 80, and they were still losing. But, but, but
1: somehow that doesn't apply to LeBron James.
5: No, but the
3: difference Why not? There's, a couple, well, there's
1: a couple differences. LeBron between, is great at
5: passing. Mean, <laughs> yeah, he's, he's not just a great scorer. Yeah. yeah, LeBron really. Matter of fact, LeBron would be thrilled. If you would double team him, well, what would he do that Harden doesn't do? Just explain pass. It to me. He would pass the ball, and also just because of the size of LeBron, LeBron can also get the ball in the post, which James Harden is not a post player, and so the difference is also. You talk about creating space. LeBron creates space for other players in the way Harden doesn't. And in some sense, I mean, as you may know, James Harden actually holds the ball by. Forty to fifty percent more than any other player in the NBA. So not only that, but the players around him are probably—I don't say demotivated, but you—I was watching. Matter of fact, what's quite about the game that I watched, I wasn't even watching Harden because I knew what he was going to do. I was watching other players when Harden had the ball. I've never seen less movement in the history <laughs> Just, of the NBA this. than these other players. L- let me
1: summarize what I'm hearing because I'm looking at two things. First of all, I'm looking at Cleveland Cavaliers being nine and thirty-nine take LeBron away, they're horrible. I'm looking at the Lakers plummeting as he's been injured. And what I'm hearing is that what LeBron is able to do is make the rest of the team much better than another any other player in the NBA.
5: Yeah, I mean that's look the number of points that LeBron James creates is just tremendous. Not
1: just the he doesn't action. score; he just makes. Well, he also scores twenty eight points yeah, a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what's great. That's about, just not that much if you think yeah. about Harden. Scoring I'm, I'm 40. trying to
0: come up with a storyline that I'm interested in in the NBA this year, and maybe maybe it's who's going to come out of the East. Maybe this Milwaukee-Toronto thing is actually interesting.
5: Well, it also let's also remember if you look at star power. This is is the age-old question. There's two teams in the East that have star power, more than one star on the team. And that's the Sixers, and it's the Celtics. Mm -hmm. So now the question is, do you want Milwaukee, who's got seven or eight players averaging 10 points a game... Or do you want the Sixers who have three players each averaging 20? It's like 20? the Atlanta
3: Hawks a few years ago were kind of that quintessential sort of
5: team, team, of, like, you know, team of lesser players, but it played well as a team. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the question this year. I think the Celtics or the Sixers will rise in the playoffs. One of the two of them. I'd rather have three stars than Giannis and a bunch of other role players. And I think that's what we're going to see in the playoffs.
0: Yeah. Matt, Matt suggesting that in any playoff series, the Sixers will have the second, third, and fourth best players in the series. So that's a nice. That's a, nice, that's a nice suite. All right, fellas. We're down to just a few minutes. And even though we don't have the Super Bowl this weekend, I want to get your early thoughts on the Super Bowl. Pats and Rams. None of us predicted that particular pairing, by the way. We probably had every other No, I, I think
3: I predicted Saints-KC. I think I struck out with my predictions I last had the week. Rams, but I
0: had the Saints. And Adi, I think, had the same. But... I had the Saints and the
1: and and, and Patriots.
0: Quick, quick, quick reactions. Yeah. Quick reactions. My
3: quick reaction, I'll probably, you know... Uh, pushes back, but um, is I think I see my, my first Pats Super Bowl blowout. I think, I think the Pats blow out.
0: <laughs> he's he's beaming. Yeah, he's got a little, got yeah. a little smile going. Yeah, on. yeah. Actually, it's about time. I'm, I'm about actually time. thinking
1: as well. I don't know about blowout. I wouldn't go with blowout, but or I would or, say, or not not. Pats I think the Pats a just, a touchdown. I mean, the, the Rams are just too new to this, and and Goff is just too young to. And you're
0: saying all of this is uncharacteristic of you. Yeah. You're waving your hands a little bit. It's, not, just, it's not, just, not experience. It's yeah. it's
1: it's I mean I think the the Belichick Brady Patriots I mean, you're talking are about a thir- good.
0: A third-year quarterback and a first-year yeah. coach. Yeah. Against a 41-year-old Brady and a you know ancient revered yeah. Belichick.
1: New
5: doesn't bother me. Again what bothers me is the Rams are the 25th best team in the NFL this year stopping the run. And so they're not a good team in stopping the run. Their strength of their team is in the back of their defense, Aqib Tlaib. and but Brady will exploit that as long as The Patriots can run the football. They're not, let's face it, they're a running and defensive primary team right now. Brady may turn out to be MVP, but he might not be in this game because they may, look, if they can run for 175 yards against the Chiefs, they probably can run for 175 to 200 on the Rams. And I think that's the difference in the game.
0: Who does the extra week of preparation help the most?
5: It always helps Belichick. It always helps Belichick the most.
0: Some people argue that actually... I mean, girly, the, girly... Some, some people argue that the compressed time frame is a greater advantage to the better coach. And when you get a, give everybody more time, mm. then they kind of catch up with the more sophisticated I don't know. Coach. So uh,
5: Sh- uh, Sean McVay still hasn't learned. I tweeted about this at W Moneyball this week. Guy didn't go for it on fourth and one yard from the, whatever, no, the five-yard it... line. The guy still hasn't learned...
0: It's, it's interesting, and Frank Frigo, our guest in the first segment, has an article up about this that that he he is so revered for his passing game and what he's done with golf but he actually is a very conservative. Extraordinarily conservative. Alright guys, that has been another Wharton Moneyball. Appreciate you joining us. Many thanks from the whole crew here. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, and this is Cade Massey. Appreciate the work from Eddie Dots keeping our show on track. Daniel Bruno and even Dion Simpkins, associate producer, longtime sound engineer. I saw him come through here. Always good to see Dion on Wednesday mornings. You guys come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.